Welcome to the Great Loop Radio podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, we're going to be talking to Brad Pickle, and Brad is with the Atlantic Intercoastal Water. Oh, I said intercoastal. That is one of <laughs> that's one of my pet peeves. Let me start that again. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay, let me try that again. Welcome to the Great Loop Radio podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA, and today we're going to be talking to Brad Pickle. Brad is with the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association, which is an organization that does a lot to advocate for the waterway. So very excited to have him back here. Before we jump into the conversation, I want to just take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Great Loop Yacht Sales, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with that out of the way, I'd like to a little bit more officially introduce Brad Pickle with the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. Brad, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation this morning. And to start off with, um, I know a lot of our listeners don't know you and are not familiar with the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. So tell us about yourself and about the mission of your organization. Sure. Yeah, I have the uh, honor and privilege of representing over, a, uh, I think we're over about 300 members now of representing a lot of different stakeholders here with a lot that utilize the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway, whether it's commercial operators, pushing barges and tugs, dredging companies, a lot of local governments and associations, all the way down to our individual boaters, like your members. And we're really excited about the opportunity to give a little update about what we've been working on. My background uh, comes from the world of marine biology, coastal engineering, local government, uh, a little bit of everything rolled into one, managing coastal resources all along the nation's coastline. So uh, it's it's been a good 12-year run I've had here now at the AIWA and I look forward to another dozen or more. And I was um, intrigued by your last newsletter because AGLCA as an association is a member of your association, um, but we also encourage our members to join individually. But um, AIWA is in its 25th year. So tell us about that. Um, you know, what 25 years ago caused the founders of your organization to say, we need to do this. Let's get you know organized and, and form the AIWA. Sure. Our organization actually was founded originally as part of the Dredging Contractors of America. There was a, a large group of individuals that came together and said, we're just not getting the focus on shallow draft projects, uh, a number of large scale projects and, and deep draft. When What I mean by those are our ports. So for us, it would be Hampton Roads, Wilmington, Savannah, Charleston, and those down in Florida as examples of those deep draft navigation ports. Uh, those were getting a lot of funding, but we were losing out on funding for our inland waterways and the smaller draft waterways such as intercoastal waterway because we're only maintained at a depth of just 12 feet uh, along the majority of the width and around 10 feet uh, down in Florida. So they came together, uh, the dredging industry, along with some other stakeholders, the tugboat operators, Boat US, National Marine Manufacturers Association, and some other state and local government agencies such as the Florida Inland Navigation 
district in Florida came together and said, hey, we need to do something to, to try to raise the awareness and the value of the waterway, not just to the commercial operators, but to our recreational users and our local government. So uh, they formed the organization 25 years ago, and we continue to make strides forward. And of, of course, my efforts now are making sure to serve as the voice of the waterway and try to represent all of our different stakeholder groups uh, when it comes to the maintenance of the waterway. Right. And I, I have had the pleasure of um, working with Brad a little bit in some of the um, American Boating Congress because we both are based out of South Carolina. We've been teamed together to visit some of the South Carolina lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, Brad is skilled at this <laughs> um, and is fabulous going in there to talk to the politicians or their aides. So thank you on behalf of all of our members. Um, Brad just mentioned specific deep ports that are spread out kind of on the um, southeastern coast. For those who aren't familiar yet with the full Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway, it runs from Norfolk, which is mile zero, on down to the Florida Keys, all the way to Key West. Um, loopers are traveling in the other direction, um, but we're doing a thousand plus miles of the Ant Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. Um, so loopers are fortunate to have benefited from Brad's work and the work of the AIWA over the years. I know for a long time, Brad, there was a backlog of dredging projects on the Intracoastal Waterway, South Carolina especially. Uh, we had some challenging issues, uh, challenging places to navigate, particularly for uh, pleasure craft who are going through there once and are not up and down the waterway and don't know too much about those challenging spots. But there's been a significant reduction in that backlog of projects um, in the last eight or 10 years. So tell us a little bit about that and, and how has how, how have you made that happen? Yeah, it, it's taken a lot of partners. Uh, we were able to work with our congressional delegations up and down the waterway to get some language put in the Water Resources Deve Development Act back in 2014. And not to get too far in the weeds, but long story short is we didn't really have good records on how much dredging was in our backlog, how much we needed to do. Of course, we knew the areas uh, that needed to be dredged. We knew the areas that shoaled in more frequently than others, but not really the cost associated with those. So we were able to get some language put in to where the Corps of Engineers now reports annually to our organization and others about the backlog. Uh, the first uh, reporting was done in 2016, and we've been getting it annually since then. In 2016, the estimate was around $126 million. And uh, as of last year, the backlog now we're estimating about half of that, about 65 million. We'd gotten it down to into the 50s, but inflation hit everyone, uh, not just uh, all the goods and products that are coming to us along the waterway, but also the waterway itself and maintenance. So we're about half of it's been taken care of. And that's remarkable when you consider the fact that in addition to just the annual filling in through natural shoaling, having to do with the inlets or from upland sources of material, uh, we also had a number of hurricanes, and every time we have a hurricane, there's additional dredging that has to go uh, up and down our waterway, has to occur. So we've been able to not only reduce the backlog in half, but also address the impacts from our numerous hurricanes that have hit us all up and down in every state along the waterway. And as you mentioned, you know, it's 1,100 miles, over 1,100 miles of waterway that we're focused on. So when you look at a backlog of about $65 million over 1,100 miles, that's not very much. It's big for my pocketbook or my bank account, but uh, not, not when you're looking at that long of Marine Highway 95. 
Yeah. And I do want to talk about where that funding comes from. Um, but just kind of a follow up question on some of the things you've already mentioned, Brad. Um, you mentioned that the ICW is is to be maintained at 12 feet, which I think a lot of loopers will tell you is not the case in some places. That's even more challenging for some of the bigger commercial vessels that use the waterway. Um, is that what you mean by backlog? When you talk about the backlog, is that places that are not currently dredged to the depth that it should be, or are they projects that just haven't been funded yet? Kind of define that backlog for us. Yeah, we've, we've been able to work with our Corps of Engineers partners uh, along the numerous districts because we have five separate Corps of Engineers districts that are funded separately. They're not, it's mm -hmm. not funded as one complete project. In addition, that's two separate Corps of Engineers divisions. So in the Southeast, we have from North Carolina down to Florida, that's all funded through the South Atlantic Division and based out of Atlanta. But Norfolk District is actually funded through the North Atlantic Division, which is funded out of New York. All the money, of course, coming from Congress in Washington, D.C. So we have to work across a myriad of different groups and accounts to make sure that we're targeting the areas that need the, the funding the most. Uh, we've been able to work with our core partners to identify those, try to prioritize those. But yes, it absolutely has to do with removing the material from the waterway and also the placement of that material. How are we gonna use it? Because to us, every grain of material, whether it's flood mine or whether it's sand, it's a resource. It's no longer, uh, in the old days, we called it spoiled, but there's nothing spoiled about it. Uh, we have a lot of material, even the pluff mud that uh, I would imagine some of your users and some of our waterway stakeholders are used to. Uh, that's now being used to restore marsh areas and marsh restoration. In addition to the sand and the high quality material, uh, that we all think of as beneficially used goes on beaches. So we're trying to work with a number of different groups to make sure that every grain of material that comes out of our channels are not being disposed of in an upland disposal area, but is more importantly being put on beaches or wetlands or marshes. Right. So um, when you are, you know, lobbying essentially for more funding, um, what are some of the, you know, approaches you use to kind of explain to our elected officials, how important this, and I've heard you mention, call it Marine I-95, um, because it kind of mm -hmm. runs parallel in a lot of places to I-95, and people, you know, who are not boaters understand the roadways, but not necessarily the waterways. So, you know, tell us, what's the approach you use when you're going up to Capitol Hill to lobby for funding to be appropriated for this? Sure. Well, you just hit the biggest one. Uh, it is Marine Highway 95. It's actually been classified that by, that, by the U.S. Department of Transportation's Maritime Administration. So being able to explain to them that it's an interconnected highway. And just like when you're going down Interstate 95, if you were to hit a, a dirt area uh, and you're hauling an 18-wheeler has fuel in it, uh, you don't really want that 18-wheeler to be hitting a dirt area. Just like when we're hauling jet fuel, which come here in Beaufort, where I live in Beaufort, South Carolina, we have the Marine Corps Air Station. All the jet fuel for the F-35s and F-18s that fly out of this air base actually comes via the waterway through Georgia from Jacksonville. So just like we wouldn't want an 18-wheeler to hit a, a dirt patch on I-95, we just also don't want a fuel barge to hit a shoaled-in area. And there's three main areas that over the years they've had to slow down and watch out for, the majority of those being in Georgia. So we were able to work with our federal partners to identify national defense is a real key use of the waterway in addition to the recreational users. Uh, I mentioned earlier the commercial barge operators moving products up and down. We have homeland security issues in Georgia because all of the on-water training for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Farms, ATF, is done on the waterway. We have Coast Guard 
bases that are in the intercoastal waterway that exit out through some of the shallow draft inlets and some of the ports, primarily in North Carolina, but all up and down the waterway. So that's life and safety. Uh, in addition, we have fisheries uh, in our state, where we are, we have the town of McClellanville. Their, their shrimping industry, which the local government relies upon, can't get out through the waterway if we don't maintain Jeremy Creek. So you have uh, impacts to to local industries, local governments. And then finally, and, and definitely important is the marina industry. Having our marinas so that people can make safe passage. I know that a number of our cruisers make the make the loop and we're, we're very happy to be partnering with you all as uh, a key stakeholder group to make sure that we hear about the issues and the challenges that we face on these transits. But if we don't have our marinas, there's not going to be a lot of rest areas for us to stop. Of course, we can anchor out, and I know a lot of areas do, uh, but our marina industry is super important to the usage of the waterway. So those are the main categories and groups. So depending on which office we're in, we highlight the ones that impact them the most. And uh, sticking with Georgia, you also then have the, the marsh restoration aspect. Uh, I use that one as a good case because it pretty much has everything is a benefit. But a lot of people don't think of maintaining the waterway in Georgia because it's surrounded by marshes, and they think, well, there's not a lot of communities that rely on that. Uh, but one example would be McIntosh County in Georgia. They don't have one mile of rail. So if we don't take care of our marine highways and we only rely on our, road, our interstate highways, we're not going to be able to get products to some of these areas. So those are just a few examples of the ways in which we try to raise awareness about the value of the waterway across a number of different categories that matter. Yeah. And loopers and other recreational cruisers are, you know, to some degree, the beneficiaries of this work. Um, you know, it, it just it is one of those things that the money talks, <laughs> the commerce talks, the goods and services and the national safety. You know, recreational boating is pretty low on that list in terms of importance. But because of all those other things that are going on on the waterways, we are, as I said, the beneficiaries of this work that is uh, so important to our national commerce, to our national defense, and all those other things. So we appreciate that, um, you know, that we get to kind of tag onto that and, and use those same waterways. I want to take a quick break and play a message from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to get a little bit more specific about, you know, recently, you know, 23, 2023 and what was done there um, compared to other years and what we can look forward to for 2024. So we'll be back in a moment. The Ditch Navigation app is your own personal harbor pilot, ensuring safe passage on the water. Powered by AI and fueled by AIS data, Ditch provides instant local knowledge on your phone, laptop, or other mobile device. Wherever you go, Ditch calculates your smart path, showing the routes that experienced boaters use. Ditch is perfect for finding a safe path through tricky shoaling waters and can also be used to explore routes boaters take to find new anchorages or secret fishing grounds. For more information, visit ditchnavigation.com. The Ditch app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Did you know that every mile of the Great Loop is covered by both the Waterway Guide and Skipper Bob? Use them to plan your Great Loop cruise and learn about the places you can visit. In the cockpit, important navigation info is always ready at your side, plus marina listings, anchorages, services, and so much more. Each Skipper Bob and Waterway Guide is updated yearly, and waterwayguide.com and skipperbob.net keep you current with navigation alerts, cruising news, fuel prices, and special deals. With the Waterway Guide and Skipper Bob at the helm, you'll always be on course. Order yours today at the AGLCA ship store at greatloop.org. 
Waterway Guide, and Skipper Bob are proud sponsors at the Admiral level with AGLCA. We're back on the Great Loop Radio podcast. Today I'm talking with Brad Pickle. Brad is with the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association, which is a huge advocate for maintaining the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway for navigation, um, for recreational boats, but also for commercial vessels and for safety reasons. So uh, we appreciate all the work that you do, Brad. Let's focus a little bit on this past year. You know, in 2023, how much was appropriated to maintain and dredge the AICW and how did that compare to previous years? Yeah, it was one of our highest years ever. We had a great year, uh, especially when we consider that we didn't have hurricane recovery funds. Uh, the, the funding sources for the waterway all comes through Congress, through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, but there's different pots of money. There's the general appropriations. That's what everybody's hearing on the news about shutdowns and and passing appropriation bills, that's one piece. Um, we also have emergency supplemental funding that comes in when we have a hurricane. And then the third piece is the bipartisan infrastructure law that came through, initially known as uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That funding led to a lot of extra money up and down the, the waterway, but also to a number of projects across our nation. So in fiscal 23, we looked at, uh, we received over $52 million, $52.8 million in uh, that was about 12 million more than fiscal year 22. 22, we received 46.5 million. But when you go back to 2014, uh, 2012, 13, 14, back then the waterway uh, one year got zeroed out. Most years got maybe $10 million. So we're four to five times what we used to get in the last 10 years. So we're really ramping it up. Uh, this year in fiscal 24, uh, we've already received an additional $20 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law. And then also looking at as much as $28 million or more coming in through general appropriations once they pass the appropriations bills. So we could be going from 46.5 to 52.8 to over $48.5 million in three years' time. That's a tremendous influx of funding for our waterways. And we want to now make sure that we don't lose sight of actually getting these projects authorized, uh, bid out, and constructed. So we're going to see a lot of movement we have in the last couple of years and a lot more in the coming year for the cruisers going up and down the waterway. And, you know, the um, the Corps of Engineers obviously does work nationwide. They're kind of on the radar of loopers right now because there has been a huge failure at a lock and dam on the Tentham waterway, which is part of the Great Loop, far from the Atlantic into our coastal. Um, but it's just kind of an example um, of what can happen when uh, things fail. And I, I wouldn't suggest that it wasn't properly maintained. It was completely unexpected, but it does speak to how important these waterways are to goods and commerce. Um, the East Coast doesn't have the same lock situation that those inland waterways do. So in some ways, it makes it a little bit easier for commercial traffic and for recreational vessels to transit that area. Um, you know, less uh, huge concrete projects that are going on. Um, how much, and I don't know if you know the number, but how much commercial goods are transported on Marine 95? Um, and is there room for more of that to happen? I know when we're cruising, we don't see nearly as many commercial vessels on the Atlantic Intracoastal as we do on the inland waterways. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it, it is underutilized. Uh, we, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have great numbers on the on the amounts. It's It's really more anecdotal uh we we have fuel barges as i said in the southeast we have 
uh, construction equipment that moves up and down the waterway for a variety of the different projects, whether it's dredge barges or their their pipes and different things that have to be moved from project to project up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, we also do have some scrap metal and agricultural supplies that are moved in the Charleston to Wilmington area on into Norfolk. So it, it, it's really a variety of different products that come through. However, there's just not a good accounting for it. Uh, we don't think that there is a capacity issue that we're going to be running up to anytime soon. Uh, what we're trying to do is get the waterway to where we know that we can, when we go out and talk to our commercial operators, we're saying, you can rely on us. Those products that don't need to be there tomorrow, get them off the trucks and put them on the rail. The projects that, the items that don't need to get there this week, take them off the rail and put them on the barges. So we see that there's a real opportunity here to think of the Marine Highway 95 as part of the integrated marine transportation system, the nation's transportation system, to take advantage of all the different ways in which we move products. Because as you get more time sensitive, of course, the cost goes up. It's a lot cheaper to move things by barge and on the water than it would ever be uh, by truck or by rail. So in addition to that, we also, it's a, a lot more environmentally friendly to move it because we can move a, a lot more products at a lot lower cost and a lot more efficiently along the waterway, as long as it doesn't have to be there tomorrow. And so we, we try to make those cases and explain to people. And as we continue to develop our ports, we think there's going to be a higher need to do what we call short sea shipping. Uh, that's a tongue twister for you, too, yes. right, up there with, <laughs> right up there at the intracoastal. <laughs> and, uh, and so we think that there's a, an opportunity to move things amongst ports to try to get more rail access, maybe bring it into Charleston and move it up to Georgetown, for example, or bring it into Savannah and take it down to Brunswick and move it up and down the waterway, connect into some areas where we have rail connections and interstate connections that aren't as quite as busy as our major port areas, Charleston and Savannah. So we want to continue to see ways in which we can better utilize all resources. But, but at this point, I think it, uh, it would be generational before we would have to worry about uh, roadblocks and, and waterway blocks from uh, traffic, I think. Yeah, it, it, and it's really interesting to consider that, um, you know, as you're moving about the waterways and how much more commercial traffic we see in the inland waterways. Um, and because there, of course, there aren't huge ports like Charleston and Savannah. Um, but the amount of goods that we see moved on those barges um, is just astounding, you know, compared to what you can put on a truck. So uh, interesting approach that I hope resonates with some of, of how we can better move things through our country. Um, tell us, you know, we talked a little bit about the dredge material and some of the ways that you are looking for, you know, new and different ways rather than piling it up somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, tell us a little bit more about some of what you can do with the pluff mud we're so familiar with in Charleston. Yeah, we've, we've been working with a lot of different partners in this uh, effort. There's a, a, a group as part of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers called Engineering with Nature. And some of the things that they're looking at is ways in which to maintain these natural systems so that nature itself will help keep them flushed more frequently. So we're working with them on just trying to limit the amount that we have to take out of the channel. So that's step one. Uh, and then step two, of course, is beneficially using the material once we take it out. Uh, we've been partnering in uh, Georgia once again and in South Carolina. I'll give you a couple of quick examples of unique projects. The, the Georgia example is at the top, the northern piece of Jekyll Island. We removed some material out of Jekyll Creek and placed it in the northern stretch there to make sure and try to help the island as far as subsidence or sinking, sea level rise. 
regardless of why it's happening, it is happening and we don't want to lose our marshes. So we were worked on placing material about six inches to a foot deep on the northern end of the island and then monitoring it to see what kind of impacts it had, both negative and positive, as far as maintaining the system. Uh, down in Altamaha Sound, a little bit further south in Georgia, uh, we built a bird island. It's the first time a bird island has been built within or near the waterway in a number of years. And it was just material that was taken out of the channel and then placed in, a, a, in the water, but nearby to try to create bird nesting habitat for a lot of our endangered and threatened species of birds. And then in the South Carolina stretch, um, this year, we started working on a project to where they were offloading. It's an area where they've been taking material out of the waterway near Breach Inlet on the backside of Isle of Palms and Sullivan's Island, just north of Charleston, and placing it in an upland disposal area. Uh, what they've been trying to do this year is actually remine that material and then transport it across the island onto the beach. So it's, it's not the typical dredge it out of the channel and place it directly on the beach, which is done often in Florida. This is actually a rehandling of material. We think it's an opportunity that we wanna see used more often. We wanna make sure that the material is beach quality sand. Uh, so there was some testing done. There was also a cost benefit analysis ran to see what would be the cost to place that material from the upland storage area onto the beach versus going offshore and getting fresh material. And they did a lot of work but the goal of the Corps of Engineers is to uh, reuse every grain of material that comes out of all their channels, not just the intercoastal waterway. They're trying to get it, uh, the, the, the metric that they're using is 70% beneficial reuse of all material by 2030. And the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway is a prime candidate for helping them reach that goal of 70%. Right now in the South Atlantic Division, which as I mentioned, is the North, the North Carolina down to Florida, they estimate somewhere on the 40 to 50% of the reuse. And we think the intercoastal waterway can help get them up to the 70%. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, five or 10 years ago, one of the debates I heard frequently when they were talking about dredging projects was what to do with the spoils and where would they put them? And you can see spots on charts that were, you know, where they were putting it. Um, when did this approach that this is material we could be reusing and doing something beneficial with, when did that come in favor and when did people start really looking at that? Sure, it, it's definitely been gradual. Uh, starting in the, it's funny when you think about the timeline though, because you can go all the way back to a uh, hundred years ago it was the first time they ever did a beach nourishment project on Coney Island. It was the first one the federal government ever did. Last year, 2023, was actually the 100-year anniversary of Coney Island. Uh, so we've known about placing material on beaches and restoring beaches. There's been minimal projects as far as marsh restoration. You'd have to go fast forward almost 80 years uh, to, to when we really started looking at in the last 20 years about trying to rebuild our marsh systems. And that's where I believe that the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway is gonna have the biggest impact. Uh, the beach quality material is the inlets, the, the material that we get out of the inlets. When the material comes in and the flood shoal gets deposited, of course, when we're going through on, on our boats, we're like, oh no, there's that shoal again. Well, that material we've known we can put on beaches, but it's only been in the past 20 years where we've started saying, okay, how can we more beneficially use some of the other material that may have higher amounts of fine materials, whether it's clays or muds or the full-on fluff mud that we're used to here in South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, and it, it goes back to some old, old technologies that are being re, uh, reused. Um, there's always been marsh islands have been built, fresh marsh islands. I mentioned bird islands. A lot of that's been built over the years just by side casting. They would come through and dredge an area and just cast the material to the side. Well, that went out of favor for a number of years, decades, 
but now that's coming back in. But it's not just side casting now. It's actually being measured and engineered and thought about how much should we be side casting? What elevation should we be side casting it to or placing it to? So it's adding that engineering portion on to the natural response. So the engineering with nature and using it. Uh, and it's had a lot of success. We're doing another project down now uh, in, in the Cumberland Dividings area, just north of Kings Bay, north of the state line between Florida and, and Georgia that we're looking to, to try to beneficially use some more material to try to turn a mud flat into an actual island for bird nesting habitat. Great to hear those those kinds of projects happening and, and being successful and really coming into favor. Um, looking to, you know, AIWA is turning 25. Uh, what yes. can we look forward to this year from your organization? Well, first off, I have to, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't pitch our annual meeting. Uh, we're going back to Charleston for our annual meeting. Our, our annual meeting, we do bounce down through the districts over time. So two years ago, we we're in Norfolk. Last year, we we're in Wilmington. Uh, and we bounce down to the Corps of Engineers districts because it's good to get the local representation, whether it's the, the colonel or, or the staff to come and, and visit with us on all of, our, all of our projects. So we'll be meeting there again at the Hyatt House. We met there a few years ago uh, there in Charleston. So we'd love to have individuals come out or learn more about it. But we do post all those presentations online. So any of our, our users, any of our members can get access to that information. So you don't have to come to the conference, but we are excited about that. We've started reaching out to some of our partners and really trying to have a larger event. Uh, the other two things that we're working on this year is getting back on the road a little bit more. Uh, the pandemic is far past. We've been having meetings and participating in meetings up and down uh, the waterway, but now we're starting to expand our effort and really trying to partner more closely with organizations that are looking with beneficially using material, whether it's on our waterway or other waterways to learn from their lessons to make sure that our Corps of Engineer District's partners and other agencies are, are taking advantage of that. So, so we're going to be getting on the road. So our newsletter will include a, additional outreach efforts and partnering that we're doing. And then the third thing we're doing is we are working with other partners on the waterway on two projects that we're trying to get grant funding for, for them to do further research so that when we have a project that's going to be coming up for dredging, that we already pre-plan where we can put that material. We're finding that the placement of material is the most expensive cost to our projects. It costs about a million dollars to get a dredge to come up to a project and leave to mobilize and demobilize, but now the upland placement areas are getting full. So we need to do a better job of pre-planning where we can use that material. So we're working on some grant projects with some of our university partners to make sure that as we have funding to dredge the waterway, they've done some research to help out our, our different agencies to make sure that we have environmental clearances and approval to be able to place the material in more unique ways and continue to expand the engineering with nature and beneficial use opportunities for the waterway. So those three main areas uh, we're moving forward. So it's, it's moved well beyond the, the late 90s when it was, we just need more waterway money to dredge. So now we need more waterway money to dredge, place, to rebuild, to enhance. And the more importantly, to have our, all of our coastlines be more coastal resilient. Uh, uh, we need to increase resiliency up and down, and we believe that the waterway can play an active role in that work. Yeah, well, we appreciate all of those efforts. Um, just as we wrap up, how can people learn more about your organization and uh, how can they join and support it? Yes, thank you. Uh, we do have a website, AtlanticIntracoastal.org is our website. You can find it online. We also have a, a Facebook page, and an Instagram account, please please look for us and follow us. And our individual boater membership, 
We just topped about 125 members, thanks to some efforts of our, our different stakeholder groups like AGLCA to help spread the word. So appreciate the opportunity. But our individual boater membership is only $30. And although we don't often see recreation thought of as a high priority reason for dredging the waterway, the number of boaters makes a huge difference. When I can walk in a congressional office and say, hey, you've got X number of voters in your district. And I did say voters because voters mean... Voters equal voters in a lot of cases to them. So it's a different type of currency that our, our cruising community and our loopers count on. So that really helps. And especially the geographic diversity that only your agency can really help me on. Uh, a number of our groups that we partner with work and focus primarily just on the East Coast, some even on the Southeastern coast. But the loopers represent a lot of inland states, as we know. Uh, so it, it, it also helps us when we can go to other areas. Uh, it's not a surprise right now our Speaker of the House, of course, is in Louisiana, not an uh, ICW state, but it's nice to let them know, hey, there's some people in Louisiana that use our inland waterways and use the intercoastal waterway also. So it's not just the, the Southeast that we're counting on to help us be members. We use your, your names, your organizations, along with the individual boater memberships to, to really make the case that it's a natural resource and, and really a national treasure. It absolutely is. And it is, of course, also a very needed part of the Great Loop. So a $30 investment, um, and we benefit greatly from the work that Brad and the AIWA do. So um, AtlanticIntracoastal.org, correct? Yes, please come online and join. And we, we do a monthly e-newsletter that you'll get, so we don't bombard you with a bunch of uh, information. But we also do issue-specific emails every once in a while, especially around the appropriations process, since that's the focus of our organization. Excellent. Brad Pickle, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for the work that you do on behalf of our waterways. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And look we forward to seeing you, you in, Yeah, look forward to seeing you in D.C. this year. Yep, I will be there. Uh, and to everyone who's watched or listened today, uh, please join us next week for another episode of Great Loop Radio Podcast. Until then, safe cruising.